0: Awesome. Good evening. It's so good to be with you guys here. If you're in person and online, thanks for joining us. Hey, if you're watching online and you're truly wondering what it's like to be in this room, let me help you out a little bit. It's a little bit like those awkward high school dances that you see in movies. Um, Instead of emotional masks, people are wearing literal masks. And so that's what it's like. (laughs) Just kidding. It's a little bit more warm and exciting than that, I promise. So if you want to join us, please do. There is, um, you can go online and you can register for a spot in here, up to 75 people. It's so good. Um, months ago, I was wondering, uh, knowing I was going to preach this Sunday, I was like, what was it, what's it going to be like to preach to an empty room? And um, I'm so thankful. I don't have to, so I don't have to wonder what that's like. Just when we're all spread out a little bit. So it's good to be with you guys. My name is Cameron, and I serve here as the student pastor here at Grace. And um, it's fun to see some of the students' faces in the room right now, even if I can only see a third of them. And so once again, um, it's just so good to be with you guys. I'm glad you're here. Um, I cannot teach and preach tonight without God's help. Um, And you, uh, none of us can receive God's word without his help either. So um, please pray with me as we start. Father, I pray for just that right now, that you would um, do what you do, which is come alongside us and help us and give us ears to hear and eyes to see. That your voice would actually be the loudest in the room, or that 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 whatever I say um, that needs to be remembered, let it stick. And whatever um, whatever is not. Meant to be that would be forgotten as people leave this room, but over and above all else, that you would be glorified right now, um, that you would receive praise and honor and glory. So please help us. Um, We are weak and needy and dependent creatures. Um, We can do nothing apart from you. It is by your grace that we are here. Um, And we move and we have our being. So I pray all this in the mighty and holy name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. For the past three weeks, we have embarked on a new journey as a church through the Old Testament book of Isaiah in a series that we are calling Dear America. If you're new to the Bible or just do not feel like you really understand how it works, Isaiah is what we call an Old Testament prophet. A prophet is a role appointed by God for God's people. It's that simple. And their job is actually not really a fun one. It certainly does not pay well. The simplest way to describe it is that their job was to call in unfaithful people back to faithfulness in God. So imagine with me for a second that your whole life's work was to go to wayward Christians, point out the ways that they have been unfaithful, reveal to them all the ways that they have sinned and rebelled against God and fallen short of his glory, and then call them to repent, which is a word that means to change direction or to turn from their waywardness and back to God. And then on top of that, telling them that if they don't, then they're destined for a life apart from God and therefore eternal death. That was for the most part, the job of an Old Testament prophet, in the phrase the Old Testament refers to God's word before the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But the Old Testament was not completely void of Christ. In fact, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That's right, so that means the history, the poetry, the wisdom literature, the law, the prophets are all fulfilled in Christ Jesus. It all points towards him. The prophets also proclaimed God's message of future hope and deliverance. It wasn't all bad. In the Old Testament, Jesus is the yet-to-be-revealed Messiah. Messiah is a Hebrew word that means anointed one or king. And God's people lived in hopes and expectations for this long-awaited king, Jesus. But why? Why did God's people long for this promised Messiah? What was so bad that they needed a new prophet, a new priest, and new king to come? God's people were a mess. They were a mess. We have talked to actually, we've talked a lot about that so far in the first half of Isaiah, which is chapters one through 39. They were enslaved to their individual and corporate sin. They flirted with other nations and their God and the, their and their um, godless nations that are godless on purpose. They single-handedly broke every law God gave to them to obey. And one of the major consequences um, of their rebellious is they were led into exile, which means that um, they, they were led to be ruled by evil and foreign kings who worshipped foreign gods. And they not only were they ruled by them, they gave into their culture and their practices of worship and, um, that are totally godless. The chapter before the chapter that we're diving into today actually announces this coming exile, this coming exile um, by Babylon. It sort of looms over the passage. Part of God's judgment upon his people, we learn, was to place them under their rule. We read a lot about that in the first half. So the entire Old Testament, it can be summarized like this, that God's people were unfaithful, but God was faithful. He is faithful to his word, to his promises, and what he means to do in and through us. And us, we are the exact opposite of faithful. And that's actually still true of God's people now. The Bible from Genesis Genesis to Revelation is a story about God's faithfulness despite our unfaithfulness. And the book of Isaiah is nothing short of that. So today, we are going to make the transition that Isaiah makes in his book. Though there were glimpses of hope in the first half of the book, Isaiah's prophecy was overwhelmingly one of God's judgment upon his people, their terrible leaders, and just about every existing nation. There's a book by a guy named Larry Crabb. It's called 66 Love Letters. He calls every book in the Bible a love letter from God to us. I love that. What he does is he goes through each book of the Bible and records a very raw and authentic dialogue between him and God as he reads, reflects, and searches for what God is saying in each of them. And for Isaiah, he says this to God, and let me warn you guys before I read this, it it, it can be a little cheesy, but we'll embrace it together um, and get through it. So it says this, here's what I see. For 39 chapters in Isaiah, you tell me more about what's wrong with your people than anything else. I've got to tell you, if I received a 66-page love letter from my wife where she detailed all my faults in the first 39 pages, I'd expect to be reading her terms of divorce in the next 27. The message you deliver in Isaiah's first 39 chapters and you repeat over and over is that you are holy and I am not it sounds like you are about to tell me we're through and it makes me want to find someone less perfect or maybe less fussy who'd be more likely to put up with me. But then you surprise me. You spend the last 27 chapters talking mostly about our wonderful future together and how much you want me to join you in looking forward to it and how, and how someone you simply call your servant will make it all happen. God, what I feel when I read this is I feel slapped and then hugged. Slapped hard and then hugged tight. It catches me off guard, actually. Courtships usually begin identifying what one person finds attractive in another, then pursuing the other for a long-term relationship. But you are so different, God. Maybe that's what you mean when you say you are holy, my hope and prayer for us as we walk through God's word of comfort this morning, sorry, tonight <laughs> and tomorrow morning, okay? Um, we will actually be surprised by Him. So, what I want us to do is walk through these 11 verses of prophecy together, which is a declaration written in the form of poetry, and answer these three questions. Here they are. The first question is why do we need God's comfort. Why do we need God's comfort? Second is, what is God's comfort? What is it? And finally, who would be comforted by God? Why do we need God's comfort? What is God's comfort? And finally, who would be comforted by God? So now's the time that if you close your Bibles or whatever, that you would open those back up to enjoy me in Isaiah chapter 40 as we start reading through this text and walking through it together. So I'm going to begin in verse 1. Here we go. It says this Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Comfort, comfort my people is a command here. What God is doing here is he's commanding someone to speak a word of comfort over Jerusalem. (coughs) And he says this in verse 2, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. It is important for you to know that as God is wanting to speak a tender word of comfort to his people, that they've actually abandoned him. They've turned their backs on him. They have worshiped other pagan gods and joined their rituals of worship and sacrifice. It's not like they've actually been crying out day and night and finally God is answering as if he has to be coaxed or persuaded eventually. If anything, they were wondering if, if and when they will ever find that he cares for them still. We know they felt as though their ways were actually hidden from God and that he has turned his gaze away from them. But the opposite is true, and that's what this word is helping us see. He comes to them despite the fact that they have turned from him. He comes to them despite the fact that they have turned away from him. So, what you actually ought to be picturing as we read this together is a husband going after his wife who has abandoned the family. Or you ought to be picturing a mother going after her, her child who has, run, who has ran away with the family's wealth and squandered it. You ought to imagine God coming after you, even though you, under the weight of guilt, are trying to hide, run away, or just ignore him. That's what we ought to be picturing. And before we continue, please notice that he doesn't come at them and say, hey, you dumb wayward people, stop running away. I'm going to love you. It's okay. Gosh, God didn't come to them in frustration. No, He says, speak tenderly. And thank God that He speaks tenderly to us. We couldn't handle it otherwise. And if you are hearing otherwise in your life, you may just need to be taught that God doesn't pin you down until you cry, uncle. He doesn't do that. He comes to you in mercy and tenderness in the first place, in the first place, primarily. God is quick to listen and he's slow to speak. Don't believe or teach someone else otherwise. Man, we could end right there. That was pretty good, but we won't. So look with me, um, continuing in verse two, it says this. It says, proclaim to her, her being Jerusalem, that her hard service has been completed and that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. So here we have it. Here in the first few verses, we have every reason that God's people are in desperate need of this word of comfort. God in his great mercy is commanding someone to speak this word, his word of comfort over them. And what are the reasons? Why? Well, first of all, it says her hard service has been completed. This is not hard service as in a job well done, pat on the back. But as one commentator puts it, it's just an appointed time of hardship. God's people suffered in every single form that you can imagine. They suffered, first of all, due to their own self-centered ways in turning from God. And secondly, they were opposed and mistreated by the powers that be at the time. The ones that they were exiled and ruled by and, um, and, and led there into captivity. And until the Messiah comes back to set and make all things right, to set captives free, this would continue to be the reality The second reason they need this word is that her sins have been paid for, it says. Before the final and sufficient atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God's people still had to atone for their sin and their iniquity and transgressions. Well, they didn't have to, but God did it because he always provided the sacrifice. That's important to understand. But the point is that blood still had to be spilt to to deal with their sin. So they lived according to a sacrificial system. Over time and after seemingly endless sacrifices have been made and so much blood spilled, you may think, when is enough enough? When is it enough? And that's actually exactly the point. Yes, living under the burden of a world bent inward and opposed to the heart of God is exhausting. It's exhausting. And we're part of it, hence the need for comfort. Lastly, she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. This communicates that God has in fact judged, punished, Punished, disciplined, and dealt with the consequences of their sin. Though not necessarily in a final sense, but present continuous. Isaiah 40 is not the final word spoken and boom, all things are made right. No, we need Jesus for that. Amen. But they look forward to that time. And this word speaks to that. So these are the reasons, these, this is the why behind their need for this word of comfort. And another thing that I want you guys to notice is how God understands their suffering so well, better than they understand it themselves even. And the same is true for us today. You need to know that, and, and you need to hear that God sees you, that he knows you, and that the good news is he sees you for who you are fully, nothing hidden, nothing hidden. And he fully loves you at the same time. Now, there is this looming question that I want to discuss shortly with you guys. And it is not one that this passage is asking nor necessarily trying to answer, but it is one that everyone at some point in their life, whether um, they are Christians or someone that just, who simply considers God, um, the God of the Bible, and it sounds something like this, something like this, I'll do the best I can. It says, why is God suddenly concerned with comforting these people? Can God not decide what he wants? Does he want them to break underneath the word of his judgment? Or does he want to relieve them of it? Many, maybe some of you, think this message of God's judgment and God's mercy are irreconcilable. Or put it this way, why does the God of the Old Testament seem so harsh and hateful, but the God of the New Testament is all about love? Yes, there is a tension in, in, in here that we experience at face value. They seem to be opposed to each other. Many have concluded that they are irreconcilable differences. In fact, they may say if you believe in a God like that, then you either lack intelligence or are psychotic. If you've been reading through Isaiah, which I hope you have, then you have certainly felt this tension. Things can get really dark, right? Right? Right. Okay. Cool. And things get really dark, but then there's this beautiful, compelling, and hopeful word about the future. I want to name that tension. So what is it? Do we believe in a God of both great hate and great love? Does our God have some sort of cosmic split personality disorder? Or is there some way to settle this tension? My goal right now is not necessarily to make the rest of this sermon about this. There actually are plenty of different biblical scholars and pastors and resources out there you can listen to and or read books on questions like these. But what I want to do is I do want to offer you guys a few thoughts. And these thoughts are actually meant to be more of heart checks as we approach this apparent tension or conflict The first thing that I want to mention is that for many, when it comes to this question, there is a fundamental issue of wanting to fashion God into your own image of who you want him to be instead of who he actually is. We all struggle with letting God be God. doesn't matter how strong your faith is. At one point I worked for a church camp and during one of our staff Bible studies, our program director said he refuses to worship a God who would basically ever allow for someone else's death or ordain it or oversee that. Once again, the fundamental issue with this is our desire to define good and evil for ourselves apart from God which is man's original sin in the garden and remains to be our greatest temptation now. I'm not saying it's a wrong question to ask. I'm not saying that. But for everyone asking it, including myself, we need to examine our own hearts and ask whether or not we are trying to be God instead of letting God be God. Secondly, two more thoughts, guys. The next one is, is praise God that he punishes and destroys evil. That's a good thing. Some people come at this question as if they only want a God who promotes good things without punishing evil. I would ask, how could God be loving if in all of his might and power he did not destroy evil? The root issue, once again, is that what God calls wrong is not what you would call wrong. We cannot have a God who is loving and who does not destroy evil and judge it. And let me be clear, it is just as wrong to only want a God that destroys evil, which leads to my last point. Not of the whole sermon, but just this part, okay? I promise. (laughs) God's mercy is more offensive than his judgment. God's mercy is more offensive than his judgment. Here's the deal. Some people would not like the message of the cross if they knew just what sins the blood of Christ atones for. Hint, every sin imaginable. The Bible, the word of God is, not, uh, is the only text that presents to us the depths of evil that resides in the heart of man and exactly what God intends to do about it. See, apart from God, we would not understand evil is evil and we sure as heck would not want to see mercy given to those who have done horrible things. If we really knew the evil God's people participated in amongst other nations, if we really knew what their unfaithfulness truly included, we would be offended by this word of comfort. But this is exactly how God works. And the same is true for us today. In fact, a glimpse into all the evil God has pronounced judgment upon in Isaiah and otherwise is at the same time a way for us to look in the mirror at ourselves and the corruption of our own hearts consumed by self-centered desires and ambition. But then his word tells us, but, but I am rich in mercy. If you don't know how Ephesians chapter 2 puts it, you ought to. So I'm going to read a little bit of it for you, starting in chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, You were dead in the trespasses and, and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I just read to you verses one through three, which is the story summarized, the story of Isaiah chapters one through 39, by the way. Studying the Bible is fun when you can notice little similar structures like that. Just a little side note. But continuing in verse 4, it says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. And he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages you have been saved. Sorry he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I just, I just now read from for, um, four through verse eight for you guys, and that summarizes the future hope that the book of Isaiah is looking towards. That's exciting. That is really exciting. Look back with me to verse three. Of Isaiah forty, and as we do, um, we are now looking and making a, the shift over to what 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 is god 's comfort okay verse three a voice of one. Calling. So from here on out, we have three different voices as heralds, proclaimers of God's word of comfort. And they tell us what God's comfort is. The first voice says this, In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places A plane and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So, this first voice is proclaiming a future event when the glory of the Lord will be revealed. That's in verse five. And all will see it, but not just in bits and pieces of his glory, like a manifestation there and a little of manifestation over there. Yippee! No, the fullness of his glory. All of his glory, all of it. And when you see it, you won't be struck down or faint upon witnessing it. You will be comforted. You will be comforted. If you notice, he says that the mountains and hills will be made low, not like Mount Rainier or anything like that, though. Um, He just means like all the other ones. So this is actually not literal. Sorry if you were kind of excited about that. It does sound cool. But it is communicating to us um, that this passage that God makes in, in the fullness of his glory will be easy and exact. Easy and exact. Nothing can obstruct God coming like this to us. And that sureness is comforting, is it not? Comfort is found in things that are sure, not things that are a maybe for example. It is not comforting to me to think maybe after a long, hard day, I will get to go home, eat an entire bags of kettle-cooked barbecue chips on the couch while watching Netflix. Am I right or am I right? Those are the options. It is comforting if and only if I know for sure that I'm going to get to do that, okay? Gosh, I probably shouldn't have shared that. So moving on. The second voice in verses six through eight comes and it says this, a voice says, crying, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Okay. So this is kind of out of nowhere, this super negative Nancy, sorry, Nancy's in the room. Um, here he's doubting and that, that his crying out to God's people is going to do anything. And I'm kind of on their side, but that's besides the point. But here's the part that I find most difficult to believe is comforting. If someone were to ask you, hey, How does the Bible describe humans? This is totally not the first place that you would probably go. These verses compare human life and faithfulness to grass and flowers. How nice is that? Warm fuzzies, huh? Probably not. Yet this is the consistent outlook on life that is set before us, especially in poetic literature of the Bible. Think of the Psalms. You are here and then you're gone. Your life is but a breath. It's a blink of an eye. I don't know if the blink of an eye part is in the Bible, but I like it. So this is all to say that you are a vulnerable creature. And this is not hard to convince people of, is it? I mean, you guys, me, we're all in it together. We get really cranky if we haven't had anything to eat for a while. We throw fits when we don't get enough sleep. Yes, even if you're an adult. We are vulnerable, we're fickle, we're needy, is another good way to put it. This is certainly not the way that we enjoy viewing ourselves. Yet, it is appropriate when what we need is the permanence of God's enduring word. Without a vision of the divine permanence of God and our frailty and comparison, we generally view ourselves in one of two ways, okay? One of two ways. If I lost you, come back to me, okay? Okay. Sorry, I have to do that to students a lot, maybe not as much the adults. So one of two ways that we would generally view ourselves. The first way is this strong belief in the power of humanity, hope in the heart of man. This is the the belief that people are born good, they become bad. But man, with the correct amount of empowerment, self-love, self-care, something like that, it'll all be good. You are capable of so much. All you need to do is believe in yourself and get to work. I mean, come on. If there is a God, he's totally on your side. It sounds like that. You guys, this, this view, our, our world is currently obsessed with this message and outlook on human life. I mean, everyone is now, nowadays is a motivational speaker or influencer. Everyone knows their stuff, right? All are puffed up with pride. And that, that's a good thing because it will bring about the best in everyone, right? And as long as you love and live out who you truly are. And how do you figure out who you truly are? Well, just look inward long and hard enough and you'll figure it out. It'll come to you eventually. And this is what is called the ideology of self-revelation or self-actualization. It's the idea um, that truth comes from within. And this world would be a great place as long as no one would infringe on anyone else's self-revelation. It says, forget God's enduring word. What about yours? I wish I could spend the next hour just explaining how faulty and empty this message actually is, but suffice it to say for now that this is a totally bloated view of humans. It makes us godlike without God. It suggests everyone is lord of their own life and it's all up to you. And I'll just speak from my own experience. I've made way too many mistakes to ever believe that to be true. I have also been mistreated by too many people to ever believe that that is true. Its faultiness seems so obvious yet we have such a hard time Giving in, not giving into it, especially in subtle ways, because it is the dominant message everywhere you look. So, is the alternative view better? No, but it is closer. It is closer. The second view is this one of hopelessness. It's basically what we just read in verses six and seven all people are grass and you wither. Woohoo. Um, and it, it's that message of, um, Fickleness and frailty without the last line of verse 8, which says that the word of God endures forever. If all lives just end in ruin, if they all just wither, then who really cares? And wouldn't it just be best to enjoy the happy moments, then expect some bad ones to come, of course? Yes. Otherwise, live it up however you see fit. These two views, if you really play them out to their fullest and furthest extent, are not comforting at all and are sure to fail. And they are certainly antithetical to God's word. God's comfort is found in his unchanging word. Comforting is the truth of who we are coming from the outside of us, from an unchanging God, not inside of us, but from the word that endures forever. His word transcends all time, places, and cultures. It is for all time, places, and cultures. Now for our final two verses. Are you guys with me? Okay, cool. Yay. Awesome. Look with me to verse nine. What is God's comfort? We're still on that. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout, Lift it up, do not be afraid, says the, say to the town, towns of Judah, here is your God. See the sovereign Lord comes with power. He rules with a mighty arm. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. Man, is that a powerful image. I'm sorry to say it, but it kind of makes me want to play a full contact sport right now, but I won't. Maybe later because it's really good weather, but I'll wear a mask. All right. This passage closes by telling us there is comfort in God's sovereignty and his rulership. Please notice and see that this whole word of comfort ultimately comes down about how you will see God coming, how you behold him, how you take your eyes off of lesser things and fix them on him. This word instructs those who would be comforted to look, behold, see the sovereign Lord who comes in power. One author adds this, he says, God's sovereignty would not be such a huge comfort were it not for the fact that his rule is an expression of his glory. This word of comfort is this, he comes, he's sovereign, he rules, he comes in power and he comes in victory. And that actually has the potential to be a matter of terror instead of hope and comfort. Do you see that? (laughs) But if we keep reading in verse 11, it says this, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. My question for you guys, my question for us is, do you see God this way? Do you know Not just that he comes, but how he comes to you. Not just that he comes, but how he comes to you. He comes in the fullness of his glory, which you're meant to look, to see, and behold. The comfort of God is just that, seeing him in the fullness of his glory. You must behold him. And I'm just gonna repeat this one more time because it matters that you guys hear this. He tends to you. Like a shepherd. Do you believe that? He gathers you in his arms, he carries you close to his heart, and he gently leads you. I don't care if you're an old Christian or new or exploring or wondering what it's all about, take some time this week to dwell on Psalm chapter 23. It is that Psalm of King David that verse 11 reflects upon, actually. If you know Psalm 23, you look at that and you go, "Uh uh-huh, okay, I see that, that's cool. And if you don't know Psalm 23, read it, dwell on it, know it. Especially if you have felt like you have been in a space of darkness for quite some time now. Or if you're just now entering into a season that you have no idea what's coming, you have no idea what's going to happen. In fact, you might feel lost. God actually wants to meet you in that space as a good shepherd. So we are going to close with this one last question. It says, who would be comforted by the Lord? The message of the Bible is the message of Isaiah. God comes after his people who are ruined and in the misery of their own sin and exile. These 11 verses are designed for God's people to peer through the current and upcoming trials of exile and look forward to a future redemption. This was their hope that God was going to come. He would rescue them. Nothing would stop Yahweh from coming in victory and getting what he wants. And we know now that he did come in the fullness of his glory and the likeness of man in the form of God. That's Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two, starting in verse six says this, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. of God the Father. Jesus, he is the fullness of God's glory. Hear this from Colossians chapter 1 verse 19. For in him, him being Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is the promised comfort of God that we read about in Isaiah chapter forty. When, he says, when it says, see and behold, he will come in the fullness of his glory and the sovereign one and in him power and in might. His ruling arm, what does it look like? It looks like Jesus, exactly like him. Not just a little bit or in part. He was the exact imprint, the exact nature of God without exception. He is Lord and he is king, yet he lived his life as a servant in perfect obedience to God unlike us. He was obedient to the point of death on a cross, dying the death that our sins deserved. He defeated death by resurrecting from the grave. And so that in him, not only are our sins destroyed, but we have new life. You see, the tension of God's judgment and God's mercy are reconciled through Christ on the cross. So who would be comforted? The answer is those who look to Jesus. Do you look to Jesus? Follow after him? Those of you who are with him and do what he did and become like him. Larry Crabb, once again, in his sixty-six love letter, shares God's response to him. And, and this is what I'm closing with. It says this, the comfort I provide described, this is God speaking, the comfort I provide described And chapters 40 through 55 is not the comfort of empathy or affirmation. It is the comfort of forgiveness rooted in my holy love and healing available only through my power. The comfort and healing I provide for people ruined by their self-centeredness. From unholy misery, exposed and condemned to holy joy, freely given and promised forever. That is the story of my love. Without my son, the story would end after 39 angry chapters in Isaiah and the comfort in chapter 40 would not be provided. Jesus is God's comfort. It's not an idea. It's not a how-to-be-comforted manual. It's a person. It's a person. Let's pray. Jesus, it's one thing for me to say that, that we need to be comforted by you, that you are our comfort. And it's another thing for that actually to be a lived experience in reality in so, pe- so many people's lives, including my own. So I pray that this message doesn't stop here, that it takes root and that you could actually be a source of comfort for people. So would you awaken faith and repentance in our hearts and be the comfort that we need, especially in trying times. I pray all of this in the mighty and holy name of Jesus. Amen.